Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, Talk About Infertility. I'm Dawn Davenport, the host and the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit. Today we're going to be talking all about male infertility or male infertility 101. We will be talking with Dr. Natan Barhama. He is the director of the Center of Male Reproductive Health at RMA of New York, and he is a board-certified urologist and male infertility specialist. We'll be also be talking with Dr. Eleanor Stevenson. She is a professor and chair of the Division of Women, Children, and Families at the Duke University School of Nursing in Durham, North Carolina. She focuses her scholarship on improving the emotional and informational needs of men experiencing infertility and is the co founder of a website all about fertility. Welcome Dr. Barhama and Dr. Stevenson to Creating a Family. We're so glad to have you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. All right, we're going to begin with the causes to understand uh, what, how, how, first of all, let's talk about how common, and then we're going to move into the causes. Uh, this falls into your, uh, your bailiwick, Dr. Barhama. So how common is male infertility, both in the United States and in the world? In summary, I think it's important to appreciate that infertility is common. Infertility as a whole uh, is uh, prevalent in approximately 10 to 15% of couples who are trying to conceive. So we're talking about millions of uh, men and women in the United States affected by this disease. If we want to be a little more scientific and break down whether it's a male or female factor, uh, often we're not able to do that. Uh, so there's a component of unexplained infertility. Mm-hmm. But 30% of, of uh, cases are attributed to the male, 30% are attributed to the female. And in about 30% of cases, we see causes affecting fertility coming from both the male mm-hmm. and the female, and we call that combined infertility. Mm-hmm. And, and is there any difference when you look around the world? Are there variations by country, or is that pretty much universal to the human condition? There are variations in semen concentrations globally. Uh, There are seasonal variations, uh, areas that have more pollution. But I think overall, uh, in the United States, we're dealing with about a 10 to 15% infertility rate. Okay. So what are the most common causes of male infertility? We know that about 30% of infertility in couples can be attributed to the male. What are the causes of that? What are the more common causes? Some of the more common causes of male infertility are hormonal issues, uh, congenital conditions, issues related to uh, sexually transmitted diseases, uh, lifestyle insults such as smoking and obesity, so uh, medications that people are using. So I think the most important thing is there are many causes of male infertility. There are uh, lifestyle, environment, physical uh, causes. So I think the you know, the, the most important thing is to first assess accurately one's fertility, uh, have knowledge and information that is pertaining to you as an individual, and then sort out with an expert the many different causes that I've listed. Some of them can be treated with uh, surgery or medication or the newest technologies that are able to overcome poor sperm production and achieve uh, uh, pregnancies using technology. I would also like to um, emphasize what Dr. Barhama said about the assessment component of this, because, you know, with these underlying causes, it really does 
uh, the fertility assessment does provide us with an opportunity to be able to evaluate our male patients in this process that we might not otherwise know something is going on with them physically. And so we know during the fertility process, men do get assessed, but often they don't get assessed um, if there is a workaround in the fertility treatment process. And so this really um, does speak to the fact that we need to do a better job of making sure all of our male patients who are presenting in the fertility setting that may, you know, their, their tests are signaling there might be a male problem, that they are seen by a urologist to get that, that assessment to see if there's any underlying conditions that can both affect their fertility status and help them achieve their, their family building goals, but also address any chronic health conditions that might be present. Yeah, such a good point. It's an excellent point because I think what we have to identify is what are, you know, the tools that are available to assess male fertility are very straightforward. They're non-invasive. They include a, you know, a semen analysis, which is a sperm test, which we'll go into in more detail. These tests can be done in an andrology uh, lab setting, but there are also home tests currently available that can signal if there's a problem. Uh, if someone has a history of cancer or a scrotal surgery or infections or having tried to conceive in the past unsuccessfully, these are all, you know, potential uh, red flags that warrant an, an evaluation sooner than later. Mm-hmm. It is so painful to watch a couple suffer for six months or a year, not have had a semen analysis to find out that this individual was born without a vas deferens or the tube that collects the sperm, and this couple spent a year under tremendous anxiety and stress and, and never really had a chance had they and would have appreciated that you know, medical condition if they've been evaluated you know, with scientific testing and medical mm-hmm. testing early on in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I also would add that you, you make such a great point that you know, very often a semen analysis is not part of the first line assessment when we are looking at a couple. And that should be the first assessment when we know that 50%, you know, it's, it's just as likely being a male issue as it is a female issue. And it's non-invasive and not expensive. And comparative to the female assessment, it is, you know, it, it should just be part of that, that initial assessment that can really mm-hmm. help a lot of couples achieve their goals um, faster. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's go back and talk about some of the uh, causes, underlying causes that you mentioned, Dr. Bahama. Uh, One, you talked about genetic conditions or uh, something that's present at birth. What can you elaborate? What type of conditions are you referring to that would impact male fertility? So when we talk about congenital causes of infertility, we have conditions such as uh, congenital absence of the vas deferens, which is the tube that transfers sperm from the testes to the reproductive system um, that is absent. Uh, it's similar, you know, the way to look at it is as if you've had a vasectomy. There is no way that sperm can travel through the system. And many, 80% of those men have mutations associated with cystic fibrosis. And that's important as we move forward with, uh, uh, you know, evaluating the partner and and assessing uh, embryos uh, and the health of the, of the progeny. There are other conditions where, uh, you know, an extra gene, uh, you know, or a, an extra chromosome was part of that male's genetic makeup. And, and as a result of that, sperm uh, production is severely impaired or non-existent. Um, there are also uh, what we call deletions or pieces of the genetic material that fell off typically on the Y chromosome, 
which can result in either the absence of sperm or very poor sperm production. So there are many, you know, and, and genetic doesn't mean that your father had it. Uh, it could be that your genes are affected by a condition that is affecting your fertility. And, and these things are important to identify because of the fact that they give us a sense of whether we will or not find sperm, as well as what we need to look out for for the health of the child. And are there any, would a, a man have an indication if he has got a genetic addition or deletion that would be impacting his fertility? It would seem like that might impact other parts of his life. Is uh, uh, That's a great question. Um, I think that uh, sometimes there are, uh, these diagnoses are made uh, at puberty, uh, when there's a delayed in puberty, and certainly if there is a delay in puberty, someone should uh, an evaluation for male infertility should be done sooner than later. But sometimes these men and these couples present to us without having any idea that there is a genetic condition. But I think that what you touched upon is another area that's important, which is causes of male infertility that may affect uh, other uh, health conditions. So, for example, when we look at blood work and do an endocrine evaluation and we check one's testosterone, that is a hormone that is important for spermatogenesis, normal spermatogenesis, but the lack of normal testosterone has implications to uh, sexual health, uh, energy, depression, mood, muscle mass, bone health, risk for cardiovascular disease. So the fertility evaluation is not just genetics. We're looking at many other causes. And some of these causes have significant implications on quality of life and other health conditions. Mm -hmm. And so it's important for a diagnosis, uh, not only for the man's uh, fertility, but also for his overall health. Look, I, I think that you know, lifestyle such as smoking and obesity and marijuana usage has a major impact on, on, on fertil male fertility. And mm -hmm. so therefore, if one is thinking about having a family and the responsibility of, of uh, being a parent, optimizing one's health, both mentally and physically, and optimization of lifestyle is an important message for men so that the best quality sperm is used to initiate a pregnancy and their overall health long term is optimized, you know, so that they can, you know, uh, diminish their risk for comorbidities. Can environmental pollution or toxins affect male fertility? I, I think the answer is yes. You know, est high estrogen uh, exposure has had some impact on, on fertility. But I think that, you know, when looking at environment, you can only do what, you know, you have you know, if you have control over your environment, those are the things you want to f focus on. Those aspects of the environment that are known to be, uh, you know, spermatotoxic. And again, I'm, you know, that is such as hot tubs, exposure to high temperatures, exposure to pesticides and uh, exposure to smoke, exercise on a regular basis, de you know, decreasing one's, uh, you know, you know, there's an obesity epidemic, you know, uh, ongoing in the United States and globally which has a direct effect on male fertility. And, and, and when I, I want to emphasize a couple of things about those you know, lifestyle issues, that it's not just the fact that it may take the male longer to achieve a pregnancy. What we're seeing here is that these lifestyle uh, you know, issues 
can actually affect the sperm's genetics, uh, whether it's the genes themselves or what we call epigenetic damage, so that the effect on the progeny, whether it's an issue of uh, birth defects or miscarriage rates or preterm labor or even more serious conditions such as development or risk for cancer and the progeny is affected by the lifestyle of the male. So one of my priorities is a what is there truly a male factor and that involves an evaluation, a physical exam, semen analyses and blood work and that should be done like we talked about early on so dealing with reality and facts is empowering and we recommend a proactive approach but also that this is not just about how quickly we can get you pregnant but the technology that we have is robust and extremely effective it's just also the individual's health uh, is is infertility a window uh, to other conditions that affect this individual's long-term or current health status and now an appreciation and and having them the male appreciate the responsibility that his current health status has an impact on the well-being and health of his child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good point. And how does a man's age impact fertility? Uh, speaking of the, the, the vitality of the sperm impacting children, what is the latest research showing on how the male partner's age impacts both the pregnancy, the birth defects, miscarriage, and as well as long-term health issues for the child, all of that. We know age is so big for women, but we often don't talk about it for men. Right. So it's, you know, look, I think fertility suffers from many historical misconceptions. Uh, One is that it's a a female issue and the male is really not a contributing variable. And we now know that 50% of the time there is a male factor. Uh, no one ever thought that there really was a biological clock to the male, as there is obviously to the, to the women. And so now we appreciate that there is a male fraternal age component. Having said that, and we'll get into that in a little more detail, it is not the same as uh, female, the female biological clock. And, and, and we need to really be cognizant of the female biological clock because you know, we have no treatment for older eggs. So uh, a female's fertility is, is individual. Uh, so, you know, it's not just, you know, one, one needs to assess their current female fertility status early on in the process because, you know, an age, age can be a, is a factor, but it may not be the only factor in one's ovarian reserve. So it's very important to, to, to assess uh, a female's fertility status early on in the process. And there is a sharp decline. You know, once a mm-hmm. woman is, is 37 and uh, her equality diminishes, but there's a bell curve to that. But, but the question here is about men, and it isn't the same uh, sharp decline. It isn't a, you know, a type of cliff that one hits a certain age and, and, and one's for male fertility or sperm production uh, ceases or declines rapidly. So, so we do, you know, not see this, this type of uh, acute de- decrease. However, once a male is over the age of 50, what we do see now is that sperm quality diminishes, uh, pregnancy rates decline, uh, it will take longer to achieve a pregnancy, that in, you know, the incidence or the, uh, uh, of autism, uh, schizophrenia, uh, ADHD, uh, Down syndrome 
is also associated with advanced paternal age. So we are you know, keenly aware that men's age is a factor. I would emphasize that while the actual statistical increase may be uh, you know, around you know, 40, 50%, uh, the actual incidence, meaning that the, uh, you know, the, the risk of these conditions is still extremely low. So at this point, we are not recommending routinely for men to freeze sperm as we would uh, for women to freeze their eggs to preserve their fertility. And uh, just to conclude, I would say that uh, lifestyle is really critical here, meaning that you, you know a 50-year-old healthy male who's exercising and, and, and not smoking is not the same as a 30-year-old male with, uh, who's obese and a heavy smoker. So, uh, you know, age has to be put in the context of other co-variables that affect fertility. Excellent. Let me pause and remind people that this show is brought to you by the support of our partners. And these are partners who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. And they they believe in it to the point where they're willing to put their money behind shows such as this that allow us to bring you this unbiased, medically accurate information. One such partner is Cryos International Sperm and Egg Bank. They are dedicated to providing a wide selection of high-quality, extensively screened, frozen donor sperm and eggs from all races, ethnicities, and phenotypes for both home insemination and fertility treatment. Cryos International is the world's largest sperm bank and the first freestanding independent egg bank in the United States, helping to provide the gift of family. Uh, Dr. Stevenson, how is male infertility usually diagnosed? We talked some in the first part, uh, part one, about a semen analysis. So let's talk some about uh, semen analysis. And why is semen analysis so often not done immediately when it seems like the obvious, one of the first things you would do? Right. Yeah. So it's generally um, male infertility is diagnosed sometimes just as a uh, secondary thought in the fertility journey of the couple. You know, as the listeners all know, um, our current fertility healthcare system is really focused around the female. So the female is the one that comes in when she's not able to achieve a pregnancy and her partner is very often with her, but the majority of the care is focused towards her, which means very often the testing um, is focused at her as well. Sometimes at the, at the initial uh, consultation, um, if she's being seen in an infertility setting, a male will get a semen analysis. But if you back up a little bit and appreciate the fact that women prior to interfacing with a, a reproductive endocrinology center, they very often are being supported by their gynecologist. And so there really isn't a space for men necessarily to be offered that, that semen analysis unless you have a uh, an astute gynecologist who thinks, you know, this could be just as, as much of an issue um, as a potential female issue. So yes, the diagnosis is, is very often made um, at the point a semen analysis is ordered. And I know um, Dr. Barhama will speak about the specifics of a semen analysis, but uh, when there's abnormalities to it, it's a signal that something else is going on, whether it is a, a, an acute issue or whether this is something that is going to be a little bit longer term, meaning they'll do a semen analysis and very often they'll do a repeat semen analysis to confirm it. And then from there, hopefully, as I stated in the first section, hopefully he will then be referred to a urologist to have a full assessment. 
All right, that leads us in, Dr. Barhama. How do we interpret the results? What is a semen analysis designed to find, and how do we interpret the results? So the foundation of assessing a male fertility, uh, one's male fertility, is obtaining a semen analysis. And the first step is to uh, provide an adequate sample, either through home collection or on-site collection, uh, with about two to four days of abstinence. Uh, that is the abstinence period that is important for us to utilize uh, to assess uh, the parameters. Um, and the parameters include uh, volume, how much fluid there is. It includes uh, concentration, meaning how much sperm is in the ejaculate, both in terms of million per ml or total concentration. Uh, then we look at motility, what percentage of the sperm are moving. Uh, normally, only 40% actually move. And the other parameter that is important to mention is shape, called morphology. There are different ways to do morphology. The WHO currently recommends that we do morphology using very strict standards, uh, where only a certain number of the sperm are utilized, stained, magnified. And just to illustrate how difficult it is to achieve pregnancy, in a normal setting where you have a concentration of, total concentration of 40 million sperm as the minimum requirement with 40% motile, using very, very strict standards for shape, only 4% of those sperm are actually normal in shape, which is why in a normal setting, achieving a pregnancy on a monthly basis with a normal healthy male and female is also only about 15 to 20%. Yeah, I often think it's a miracle that anybody gets pregnant <laughs> when you actually look at the, uh, uh, the, the statistics and things such as that. So what type of facility, where, uh, Dr. Stevenson, where should or where can a semen analysis be done? Does it need to be done in a specialized lab? And what if a woman is seeing her gynecologist? Can the gynecologist order a semen analysis? They can, and very often men can go to a centralized lab in order to have a semen analysis done, um, but they can also have it done at the uh, reproductive endocrinology office. And uh, so either setting would be appropriate. And I'm sure Dr. Barhama has some, some uh, more insight into that particular part of it and how it interfaces with the care team, because the key is getting those results back to the appropriate people to be able to make the referrals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dr. Bahama, yes, if you could share on that. I, I think that, yeah, I, look, a, a semen analysis is typically uh, a prescription-generated test. So either the OBGYN or the male fertility specialist will order that test. Um, and it's done in specific uh, laboratory uh, you know, andrology centers. There is a step before that, which I think is gaining you know, momentum, which are tests that people can do early on and, and uh, what we call home sperm testing. Mm -hmm. And I think those technologies, uh, there are FDA approved devices that don't require a prescription. Uh, there is a YO home test, there's a track test. Yeah, one of them is, you know, for example, the Yo test is one that is uh, uses uh, your, you know, an app, so you can actually see sperm on your phone or computer. Uh, there are other tests that are in the pipeline. Those two come to mind because they are. Uh, sperm check is another one. These are FDA approved tests, 
So I think that uh, the list of FDA approved sperm tests is growing. And the way I view that is that if you want to get information and you should, you know, assess the male very early on in the process, there are now options available uh, to you to get a signal. It's not as accurate as the andrology test, but certainly it can give you an indicator or a signal if there is a problem. So what is it testing? How do they work? If, is, is it going to give you the same parameters that a semen analysis in a lab is going to give you? Uh, is it testing? Uh, so they, they uh, depending on the test, uh, some give you concentration, some give you concentration and motility. Morphology is currently not in the home testing arena yet, but if one wants to get a sense of concentration and motility, uh, home testing is currently uh, an option to start the process. But again, I I think that it has to be put into context. If someone has had a history of sexually transmitted diseases, if someone's had a history of scrotal surgery, if someone knows that they have dilated veins or they feel that they've had dilated veins uh, in the scrotum, uh, if one has erectile dysfunction and a low testosterone, if someone is taking steroids or testosterone, these are all things that should prompt them to see a fertility male fertility specialist uh, right away and get a formal evaluation. But if, if, you know, I think it's just a matter of doing nothing or doing something and doing something early on is better than just letting things ride and wasting valuable time. Mm -hmm. So we have talked about a male fertility specialist. Who is a male fertility specialist? Uh, Dr. Bahama, this is probably one that should be directed to you since you are a male fertility specialist. Well, I look, I think that, you know, I'm very proud to be part of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, ASRM. And uh, there is a sub-society called the Society of Male Reproduction and Urology, of which, you know, currently I'm president of. And I can tell you on behalf of my, of my membership, most places in the United States, if you search for a male fertility specialist, uh, you should be able to find someone who is not only a urologist, but who's someone who has done uh, subspecialty training, which is typically one or two years after their residency, to focus on male uh, reproductive uh, medicine and surgery. And that is a, a, a niche uh, subspecialty. And, you know, online, there are websites that help you identify uh, those individuals. But that is who I would recommend going to because uh, they know what they're testing for, what they're looking for. And more importantly, you know, the, the objective of the evaluation is, A, can we identify something? that we can improve upon, meaning that can we improve your semen and uh, parameters and your fertility status by either a medical or surgical intervention so that you may be able to conceive either naturally or through less invasive options. Part of the evaluation is for us to assess whether there is a cause here that we don't have a treatment for. Uh, We cannot change one's genetics and therefore identifying that as a cause is is important because you know we may be able to find sperm we may not be able to find sperm but there's nothing that we can do to alter the genetics 
And, and so there are situations where treatments are available, or there are situations where treatments are not available. And I think that seeing an expert in the area is helpful in, in, in sorting that out clinically. Okay, so I absolutely go to see a specialist if there is a problem. And uh, Dr. Brahama just gave us the, 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 the type of specialist with which to, to seek. Now let's move to talking about some of the treatment options, depending on the cause. Dr. Bahama, you just mentioned that the uh, treatment options, if there is a genetic abnormality which is causing the man to produce no sperm, there probably isn't a treatment option to utilizing the man's sperm. But let's go talk about some of the other common causes we mentioned in part one uh, for abnormal semen analysis. Um, obviously, if you're taking medication that affects your fertility, one solution, one treatment would be to work with your doctor to see if you can reduce or change the medication. That would be probably one. What are some other, uh, let's go back to talking about some of the other causes, the physical causes, and what are some of the sure. common treatments? So I think that when it comes to just taking a step back, when it comes to genetics, there are genetic conditions that cause a blockage. Uh, such as cystic fibrosis mutations associated congenital absence of the vas, that condition, although genetic, the sperm production is normal. So not every genetic condition is not amenable to technology and, and, and fertility. So we also have conditions that are, as you mentioned, that are medicines that affect fertility. So for example, uh, we see a lot of men who uh, utilizing testosterone therapies. Testosterone therapies or steroids are very effective contraceptives. So these men's sperm counts can be and uh, improved if we offer different medical regimens other than testosterone. Um, there are situations where infections are present and treatment with antibiotics are helpful. We also know that dilated veins in the scrotum um, are increase the temperature around the testes. The testes need to be two degrees cooler in order for normal sperm production to occur. So fixing uh, surgically or radiological embolization of these veins can improve semen parameters as well. People, uh, men present to us having had vasectomies or uh, blockages that we can go ahead and either do reconstructive microsurgical procedures or move forward with sperm retrieval. Uh, these days, the ability to do IVF in vitro fertilization with ICSI, which is the capability to inject one sperm into each egg, uh, technology called ICSI, ICSI, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, is really one of the most remarkable uh, advances in assisted reproductive technologies. When you think about it, uh, you're taking typically, you know, with IVF, you get 10 or 20 eggs. And all you need are 10 or 20 sperm to inject one sperm into each egg. So if someone's count should be 40 million, but their count is only 100,000 or only occasional motile sperm, or we go into the testes and use a microscope and find tubules that have sperm, we don't need a lot to overcome severe male factor infertility. So there are uh, treatments to improve one's current status, and there are treatments and, and procedures that enable us to use uh, occasional sperm uh, in, con in, in concert with our REI 
and the technologies such as Exit. Okay. And lifestyle changes. What are the lifestyle changes that you find you are often recommending to your male patients? Well, I, I, I think that's important to address right away. And, and one of the important parts of the discussion is to help men appreciate that sperm production takes 72 days. So any change in lifestyle or medication or, optim- or attempts to optimize uh, semen quality will take at, at least three months for us to start to see. And it may take one or two cycles. So we're talking about three to six months for us to see the benefit of interventions associated with lifestyle. But there's no question that obesity, weight loss, we have a nutritionist uh, in our practice, uh, stress and, and time management and, and making sure that there's time for uh, you know, exercise and, and diet is, is also an important part of the uh, fertility program. We, we have a, a psychologist uh, on staff that is often used to help optimize uh, smoking cessation programs, decreased alcohol consumption, and all of that. And, and we, we use uh, you know, antioxidants and supplements. We basically want to engage the male in a proactive way to be responsible for the health of his sperm uh, to achieve a healthy pregnancy and to do the best we can to ensure the health of his children. I also just wanted to add to that, just taking a like a step back from lifestyle and its impact on male fertility is the general public really doesn't make the connection between uh, poor lifestyle choices and male fertility. I actually have um, some research that's in publication right now that looked at large-scale population uh, understanding of lifestyle and male fertility, the specific question. And people typically, not men going through fertility per se, but uh, general population really isn't making that connection that it can have such Hmm. a direct um, impact. And so in general, we need to be doing a better job in, yeah. in um, educating our, our population. But it's something to think about when men come in into um, the practice that Dr. Barhama was talking about and all the wonderful resources that are available is sometimes it takes a little while for men to kind of get on board to say, yes, I need to be making these changes and it can be a challenge. And your research was not focusing exclusively on men experiencing infertility, but the general population. And and, and mm-hmm. I'd be curious, I would assume the general population would, would think that lifestyle would impact a woman's fertility, it, it, and, but not a man's fertility. Is that what it shows? Or are people just not cluing into lifestyle affecting fertility at all? I, I would agree that they probably, they do feel that it has more of an impact on women, but I think that that speaks to the fact that the general public sees this more as a female problem as a baseline. Right, right. And then and, and, and we will talk about that in part three, because that assumption also impacts from the, from the, from the men's standpoint, from the emotions and how they handle it. Dr. Bahamut, you talked about uh, the use of supplements, and uh, I'm particularly interested in knowing what is supported by research for the treatment? What supplements are supported for the treatment of male infertility? Because there is no shortage of internet ads uh, available for anyone who is looking about how to boost uh, male fertility. Mm-hmm. So what is support? And I would say that's also um, worldwide, both in what we eat and drink and everything else, as well as purchase supplements. So what supplements are supported uh, to, to work with uh, improving fertility in men? 
It's, it's an excellent question. The literature is mixed in terms of the efficacy and the science regarding the use of supplements. But I, I think that there is, you know, an appreciation that the sperm cell is a unique cell. And, and, and the, if you think about it, when you think about what a normal cell is, you have the picture of a circle uh, in, a, in a tube in there, the nucleus, which is the, uh, and there's a cytoplasm. Um, and the cytoplasm in the normal cell is where the defense mechanisms are present to protect the cell. Uh, antioxidants, uh, you know, the, the insult from the toxins and, and free oxygen radicals, the mechanisms to combat and to protect that cell are built into the cytoplasm. The sperm cell is, is like no other cell. It doesn't have a cytoplasm. It's really essentially a, a missile with a tail to bring genetic material to the egg. And so the sperm cell is fairly vulnerable to damage from free oxygen radicals and is reliant and dependent on the environment it lives in, which is the seminal fluid and the defense mechanisms that the seminal fluid provides. So in, in that regard, the, the notion that building up, uh, you know, a reserve of, of uh, vitamin uh, antioxidants, uh, certain amino acids, uh, CoQ10, uh, that are able to be, get into the seminal fluid, enable the sperm environment to protect the sperm and optimize fertility. And so we do have literature with certain antioxidants and supplements that improve uh, sperm quality, motility, uh, DNA fragmentation. But because this is an unregulated space, uh, we don't have the same you know, type of clinical trials that we would have for drug approval. But the notion that improving one's antioxidant status uh, specifically for fertility and sperm, is, is based on, on scientific uh, data. So what type of supplementation should people consider? Typically, uh, the formulations that have uh, antioxidant, uh, vitamin C, some zinc, CoQ10, uh, certain amino acids uh, that are in glutathione and allogenine can, uh, are often found in these formulations that are present uh, and utilized to optimize male fertility. Excellent. Let me pause now to thank another one of our partners. Cooper Surgical Fertility and Genomic Solutions are global leaders in IVF and reproductive genetics. Cooper Genomics offers PGTA, PGTM, PGTSR, and ERPEAK endometrial receptivity testing for those pursuing IVF. Cooper Genomics Genetic Testing Screenings, and Embryos Genetic Health to help your care team select the best embryo to transfer and improve your chance of achieving a successful pregnancy. Dr. Stevenson, I know that you have spent a, a, you write a lot and research a lot in the area of male infertility in general, and, and in particular, the misunderstandings and the emotional issues that come with male infertility from, from both men and women in the general public. One of the things that we see in our online community is a, it, it starts at the very beginning, and that is a general avoidance of initial testing. 
Um, have you seen that in your research? And, and if so, can you shed some light on, on, on why? So as far as men avoiding it, yes, I do think that there is a tendency for men to initially believe when they're in the process of trying to family build and they're not having success month after month. My research, I have found that men, their initial thought is it must be my partner. And I think that speaks to the larger public perception. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Of it's a female problem. And so, yes, I do believe that there is some initial hesitation to seek out some testing. I think also men have found that when men are, are confronted with a, a very poor semen analysis, their initial reaction is denial, that it is an, a particular, that, that there is an issue with them. So I think that the combination of those two definitely can delay men from wanting to seek out testing. But ultimately, what I have also found is that women kind of drive the experience and so when, um, you know, when they go collectively together, if, if the woman, you know, is, is uh, advocating for the testing, then, then the couples I've interviewed, ultimately, you know, they both get on board for the whole process. Mm -hmm. So what does the research show, Dr. Stevenson, on how men emotionally process infertility? And it, does it differ from how women process their infertility? And when I speak of men, men processing infertility, I mean when there is a male factor diagnosis. Yeah, that's a very important distinction because most of the literature about the emotional side of infertility either specifically looks at when there's a female diagnosis or the literature doesn't actually disclose. They don't actually right. ascertain whether it's a male and or it's, female issue. I know, and that it, it's, it's infuriating because it's like that's so important. Right, because it, the dynamic is different, whether it's a male issue, female issue, combination or you know, uh, unknown. Um, so yes, the short answer is they do react differently, but no less profoundly, uh, no more or less profoundly than, than a woman would react to the diagnosis. Um, so I mentioned the denial. So when there's a diagnosis of uh, male factor infertility, and my research focuses on severe male factors, so very severe uh, diagnosis up through um, azoospermia, where there's no sperm in uh, the ejaculate, you know, they will eventually obviously accept the, the diagnosis, but in the process of the testing and treatment, what I found in one particular study where I interviewed couples over several times over the course of their treatment is men typically tend to bury their feelings. The feelings are there, of course, but they typically don't like to talk about them, at least in their professional um, circle. And they actually don't want to disclose the most interesting thing about this, the difference between men and women, is that women will want to talk about their fertility diagnosis with their mothers, their sisters, their friends, et cetera, et cetera. And that seems to be um, even when there's a male diagnosis. So like I said, I interviewed um, couples both here in the U.S. and in the U.K., when there was a male diagnosis. And women wanted to talk about it. And the partners, the male partners, did not. They were uncomfortable disclosing. Um, they recognized their female partners needed to have that space to share, although they weren't terribly happy about it. They did acknowledge that it was important for them, but they would have preferred to not disclose. So there is definitely a pattern of non-disclosure, even when a pregnancy is ultimately achieved, which I found to be the most interesting part of, of that, that portion of the research. And why do you think, does your research elucidate why men don't want to disclose? Well, I think it kind of goes at the heart of what men are often experiencing when they're confronted with this diagnosis, because it really challenges their sexuality and their virility and their self-esteem. 
And it also challenges what their ultimate role is within their relationship with their spouse, their partner. And very many men see a big portion of their role is to be able to achieve a pregnancy with, with their, their partner, particularly when the partner so very much wants this. And men had said this over and over is that part of their disappointment was not, was disappointing their female partners by not being able to achieve a pregnancy. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Bahama, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think that was summarized beautifully. I, I think that men and women are different. Uh, they respond to medical to access to healthcare or medical conditions differently. Uh, fertility uh, is is directly Im- impacts, as mentioned, self esteem and and self worth. Um, the repercussions are that uh, there is denial, but there's also a physiological effect: uh, stress and anger, uh, anxiety can manifest uh, as erectile dysfunction. Very often in my practice, uh, they get they come uh, you know to the fertility uh, clinic uh, after months of, of, of failure and, and, and erectile dysfunction is, is psychological and utilization of you know, PDE5 inhibitors uh, is extremely helpful because you know men aren't geared to produce a sample and have sex on demand and uh, the anxiety just builds uh, over time. Uh, you also have individuals who really want to do something, you know, um, to improve their condition and engaging them uh, helps the dynamic between the couple uh, so that it's not seen as, okay, I'm at fault, but all the treatment falls on her. So if there's a way to to take ownership of the situation by improving lifestyle, losing weight, you know, addressing, you know, conditions when they're found helps uh, separate out the contribution and is often very helpful for the dynamic as well. Dr. Brahama, I was glad that you raised the issue of erectile dysfunction. I think it is seldom talked about, and I am wondering how common is erectile dysfunction, not as the initial coming in, but through but but erectile dysfunction developing as a result of repeated attempts and and the taking of the timing and the taking the spontaneity out and the stress and the worry and all of that. How common is that in the population that you see? In my population, it's very common uh, and there is tremendous relief to address it. And fortunately, the whether, you know, a combination of seeing the psychologist, addressing the stress and the pressure that's associated with trying to conceive, plus the therapies that are effective and safe tends to very effectively address the sexual dysfunction component and is very helpful for the couple moving forward. What and what are the what's the first line treatment other than psychological help to try to work with the stress and and put and, and help control the stress more? What are some of the uh, medical first lines of defense, uh, first lines of treatment for erectile dysfunction? Because I would imagine that knowing that it can be treated takes some of the stress off. Well, I think it's a combination of knowing that the treatments are available, but also that the treatments are working. Uh, so we're talking about a class of drugs called PDE5 inhibitors. Uh, there are numerous, uh, Viagra, Cialis, or two, uh, and there's others. Uh, they are available now in generic form. Uh, so the price you know, associated with these treatments has markedly diminished and has made it affordable 
and it works extremely well for the majority, vast majority of uh, men in this situation. Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right, Dr. Stevenson, in, in your research, have you seen that the race or ethnicity of the man impacts how he might typically handle a diagnosis uh, of, of infertility? Hmm. That is such a great question, Dawn. I will say that my research does not allow me to kind of provide any sort of specific insight because, you know, we, we need to first do a better job being more inclusive about having a our patients of color feel like they can fully come into the fertility world. And I say that because I I have a, um, I had a PhD student, she just recently graduated and her focus has been on um, the experience of women, uh, black women, African-American women in this country in the Mm -hmm. fertility setting. And it kind of scratched the surface about the experience of fertility amongst uh, persons of color. So I don't have any insight as it relates to men. It is definitely a huge area that we need to know definitely Mm -hmm. more about the experience of persons with color in the setting of male infertility diagnosis. Dr. Barhama, do you have any insight into either through your practice or through reading research? Well, I think it's a concern as it relates to health insurance and disparities in terms of access to health care, and that very often, you know, fertility is either not covered or is expensive without insurance coverage. So I think it's, it's related to the overall crisis in health care that uh, has prompted, you know, many organizations, both state and federal governments to address, uh, you know, advocacy for fertility and fertility uh, care. It isn't that long ago that uh, fertility was not considered a disease, uh, and it is. Um, And it's, uh, you know, now there are certain states that have mandates uh, for fertility coverage, but not all do. And some mandates have loopholes that prevent individuals with insurance to have access to good fertility diagnosis and treatment. And one of the things that we're talking about is male fertility. And it's, it's mm-hmm. especially a, a, a issue when it, because even if there are mandates and coverage for fertility, very often the male is excluded, which sounds you know, illogical, but that is the reality that, that we're faced. So there is you know, downstream implications of you know, access to care that are affected by socioeconomic and racial status. Right. And, and an area that we need to address medically more uh, and, and from an emotional and medical standpoint, we need to acknowledge the impact of race and ethnicity, both on the access to treatment, uh, but also on, the, uh, on how people will process, how men and women will process their infertility. Because if we can address it from the emotional standpoint, we can help we can help make the whole process just so much easier and less strenuous. Thank you so much, Dr. Eleanor Stevenson and Dr. Natan Barhama for being with us today to talk about male infertility. Let me give the website for All About Fertility. That is a resource for, an online resource for male infertility. And the website is an easy one. It's all-about-fertility.com. So that's all about fertility. 
Let me remind everyone that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. And keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your infertility professional. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week.